0: today's reading is quite a short one, Uh, we're reading from Mark chapter 4 and just verses 10 to 12. When Jesus was alone, those who were around him, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything comes in parables, in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive and may indeed listen but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. Can you keep a secret? Have you ever kept a really big secret? Perhaps you're sitting on a really big one now and bursting with the weight of it. But there are different types of secrets, aren't there? Some secrets we protect because we're ashamed or we're guilty We've done something wrong and we'd just rather that others didn't know. But then other secrets ought to be kept. So our email passwords, uh, the pins for our bank cards, these aren't things that we should feel guilty about or feel like we need to confess at all or to be honest about. And we have the right to expect that uh, our healthcare providers will keep our medical information confidential. It's not theirs to tell. And then I think there are other kinds of secrets that are fairly neutral, so uh, we might hide our chocolate stash so that it's still there when we get back to it, doesn't get consumed in our absence, but can be shared at the right moment. Yes, that resonates. (laughs) Some secrets, on the other hand, are only secret for a time. So companies like Apple, for example, are secretive around new products that they might be developing. Uh, They're strategic about the kind of information they provide and that's also that they can increase the hype and then increase the sales at the right time. When people are expecting a baby, they often keep things quiet for a few months. But it's the kind of secret that definitely has an expiration date. So we might also be secretive about the nature of a gift uh, that we've bought for someone special uh, because we're hoping to increase their pleasure when they unwrap it on the day of celebration. So this week we're looking at the fourth chapter in Mark and it's a chapter that's mostly filled with well-known parables. So you might be familiar with the parable of the sower which is kind of the meta parable for understanding all parables. But instead of looking at the parables themselves, I've chosen just to focus on these few cryptic lines in between, because I think they're often pretty confusing. And we're quite used to the picture of Jesus teaching in parables, aren't we? It's kind of part of the image of him as this sort of wise teacher on the side of a mountain spouting these profound and pithy statements sandwiched in the midst of these various parables that come in this chapter, Jesus tells his disciples that, in fact, they're in on a big secret and that the parables are for those on the outside. And this isn't the only time secrecy comes up in Mark. So you may have noticed there's a bit of a pattern. In the first chapter, Jesus casts out a demon and he heals a leper and then, on both occasions, he entreats witnesses to keep silent about what they 've seen, what he has done and this keeps happening with several other miracles that he performs uh, when Peter professes him to be the Christ, the anointed one of god jesus immediate response is to caution the disciples to tell no one and then we see the same instruction again when Peter James and John. Return with Jesus from the mountaintop after the transfiguration. Sort of says, keep a lid on it, fellas. Don't tell anyone. Hang on. Secret? Jesus' teachings are secret or his identity is secret? Why does this keep happening? If you've read your church history or you've, you've studied a bit of theology, the idea of secret teaching might start setting off alarm bells in your head because it really sounds a little bit like what we call Gnosticism, which is this ancient tradition that has contemporary parallels. It's this idea that there's kind of a special knowledge that's only available to the elite few in order to receive salvation. So is that what's going on here? Is the good news of Jesus secret knowledge? Well, we considered a range of, of different types of secrets before and whether they ought to be told or to be kept, whether they had time limits or not. What kind of secret is Jesus talking about in this passage? If his mission is to bring the gospel, so the good news, then why does he keep shushing everyone about it? Like surely that's, that's counter to the goal here. And it gets more complicated than this too because elsewhere in the same gospel, Jesus seems to contradict this call for secrecy. So last week, Nigel talked us through when he healed the paralysed man. Onlookers question the audacity of his claim to have forgiven the man's sins and he rounds on them with this bold statement that hints heavily at his true identity. What is harder, he asks, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this man to get up and walk? And then following a different exorcism, he encourages the formerly possessed one to share his news and his experience widely of being healed. But coming back to the idea of secrets, how do we usually go about keeping a secret? I mean, obviously, we're not forthcoming with the sensitive information. We don't go around shouting about it. We don't draw attention to it. Uh, we don't draw attention, hopefully, some people do, but probably not a great idea, to the fact that we have a secret in the first place. We don't go around saying that I know something you don't know. That's just asking for trouble. But what do we do to prevent others from guessing anyway when they stray unknowingly close to the truth? What do we do? We tell lies. Companies leak false information to confound their competitors, and I can tell you there is advice column after advice column out there instructing newly expectant mums to pretend they're following detox diets, to explain all the food and drink aversions that they suddenly have, uh, to feign injury so they can throw their workout partner off the scent when morning sickness stops them getting to the gym. Uh, to invent dental appointments, to cover for those early checkups. Um, yeah, it's endless. But usually, keeping a secret means we eventually resort to some kind of lie. But here we see a very different approach when it comes to guarding the secret that is the kingdom of God. Because Jesus doesn't tell lies at any point throughout, instead, he speaks in parables. So what is a parable? Well, at its most basic level, parable just means comparison. And that's what they usually are. So Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this or the kingdom of God is like that. And much of the time, he's drawing on natural processes that they'd be familiar with, uh, like the way a seed grows or the way light radiates out from a lamp. So essentially, the clues are there all around them understand how God works in subtle ways and perhaps subtle is the point because Jesus emphasis on secrecy is often connected with miracles or displays of power so maybe the reason he keeps telling people to remain silent is because he doesn't want to give the mistaken impression that the kingdom of God is established by force or power in the way that they might expect So in a culture that was anticipating a political messiah, someone who would come and overthrow their Roman oppressors, Jesus repeatedly diverts attention away from his miracles. They're performed out of compassion, not out of a desire to coerce belief or to establish authority. So is the idea of parables then to be deliberately difficult to understand so that some will miss the point? Are we maybe just splitting hairs here? Perhaps a parable really just amounts to a lie by omission, a clever avoidance of the truth. No, Jesus doesn't tell lies, he tells parables. And the goal of a parable is not so much to conceal the truth, but to present truth to the hearer in an unconventional way. And to think through that a bit more, let's dig into how parables work. So a lot of the parables of Jesus include an entreaty at some point along the lines of, let anyone with ears to hear, listen. If people are paying attention, they will understand, even if the full significance takes a while to creep up on them. If we look at the parables from this fourth chapter of Mark, for example, they contain echoes that would have been familiar to those well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures. Remember, in week one, Paul was speaking about how when you hear that hint of a reference to, to what we know as the Old Testament, the original hearers and readers would have understood stood the full context of that original passage. So the parable of the mustard seed, for example, begins with the question, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? And this puts us in mind of a similar question that's asked in Isaiah 40. To whom will you compare God? Jesus is signalling to his listeners that he's about to give them a new understanding, a fresh insight into the nature of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom grows like the mustard seed, from the smallest of beginnings, in this case Jesus' ministry in Galilee, to a mighty structure capable of sheltering all. When he says that the birds will make their nests in its shade, he's again hearkening back to the Old Testament, Because both Ezekiel and Daniel use the image of a large tree to refer to a large kingdom. So the secret of the kingdom, according to Mark, is not rooted in fear or shame or guilt. And it's not something that's protected by means of deception. Jesus wasn't hushing up company secrets to achieve greater market success. He wasn't proclaiming some kind of Gnosticism, some kind of secret knowledge that's only available to select few. But he was speaking in a way that allowed a fuller understanding to grow with time, a way that would circumvent the assumptions that many held about the Messiah and the kingdom of God and what that would look like. Why? Because the truth Jesus is revealing in this way is radical. It's subversive. It's a truth that's likely to get him into trouble if it's communicated badly, uh, if, if it's misunderstood before the appointed time, because people need preparation to hear the good news properly. The kingdom of God is not a power play, nor a political weapon, but an entire reversal of the social order. So these parables make allusions to the day of the Lord, which was a time of God's judgment that many of the people of Israel were eagerly expecting. And they were expecting an event in which God would restore their fortunes and at the same time heap judgment on their enemies. And Jesus is hinting through these parables that the promised day of the Lord is indeed coming, but it's not going to look quite like what they are expecting. It's an explosive message, so it requires careful communication. And therefore, plain speaking was reserved for the disciples while they were in private. But in the reference to Isaiah that we have in these verses, the idea that they may look but not perceive, that they may listen but not understand, we shouldn't for a moment think that the kingdom of God is forever denied from those outside. Because God desires for all people to know him. And this revelation does reach its fullness in the appropriate time. During his trial, for example, Jesus is unambiguous about his identity when answering questions from Pilate. (laughs) And following his death and resurrection, the disciples are able to build the church very quickly on the basis of the greater understanding that they have now that his mission is essentially complete and that gospel message is understood more fully. So I've been speaking about how the understanding of Jesus' true significance was imparted gradually over time to those that he lived among and encountered. But what about us? Because this, this isn't how it is for us, is it? As readers privy to the whole of scripture, our view is very different because Mark tells us in the opening sentence of the book who Jesus is. We know this from the very beginning. But even with that knowledge, parables do their work on us too. Their true meaning can sneak up. It can take us by surprise. We can read commentaries that explain their meaning to us. We can break them down bit by bit. But often that's not enough on its own. By addressing his original audience in parables and preserving these in scripture for subsequent reading, the word of God is communicating with our whole selves as creatures endowed not only with intellects but also with imaginations. So what can we take from this? What does it mean for us? Well, the task of the church in the present age is to witness to the revelation that we have received in Jesus Christ the Word and in the Word that proclaims him, so our scriptures. And it's important when we do that, that we do it in ways that account for the fullness of human experience. We don't just point to miracles or signs or arguments in an attempt to coerce belief. And these things, you know, they do have their place in Christian apologetics, which is a defence of the Christian faith, but they'll only take us so far. Because if we take our cues from Jesus, we see that communicating the truth of the gospel appeals to to the imagination as well. And how that looks specifically might be different in our cultural context than it was for the people of Israel in the first century. Jesus was able to draw on these images that were familiar to his audience. They were well-soaked in the Hebrew scriptures, so they resonated. N.T. Wright challenges us in this area. He asks us, as readers of Jesus' parables in a very different world, we are to think out what we have to do to be kingdom workers and kingdom explainers in our own day. And he uses another analogy drawing on, on music asking how can we strike fresh chords so that people will be teased into picking up the notes and perhaps even joining in the song. So the good news of the gospel has never been secret, but has always been available to those who have the ears to listen. And those of us whose lives have already been transformed by this good news are compelled to make sure that these opportunities to hear continue. We don't represent the truth of Christ by means of deception, but nor do we assume that what resonated with first century Jews requires no translation or interpretation in order to gain purchase in the vastly different world we inhabit today. But we can trust that God is working in people's hearts even as we wrestle with fresh ways to express these timeless truths about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that grows out of these early days of Jesus' ministry that we're reading about in Mark's Gospel into a great shelter that offers shade for all. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your word, for creating us in your image as beings who come to understand by thinking, by feeling, by imagining. Thank you for the richness of that existence. And help us in reading your parables, never to assume that we have figured them out finally, but work in us to bring us to ever greater understanding. For those who are closed off to your truth for various reasons, we ask that you will be at work there as well, preparing hearts and minds, ears and eyes, for people to recognise you as you graciously reveal yourself. In your name. Amen.